Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 11. Chapter 20. It's just past lunchtime when I walk into the pod that is now under Fanny's leadership. She's flushed and pink from the exertion of moving into Polly's room. March's voluminous collection of possessions have been boxed and stacked in the hallway next to her newly assigned quarters. Fanny is in the process of hanging up her hammock, and she's also pulled a few of Polly's things from storage. They sit on a mini near her door, waiting for her to place them around the room. Typical Fanny, she laughs when she takes the box from me. I'll set the lock code and figure out some place to store this, she says. I guess I shouldn't just add it to the pile in the hallway, right? She puts the box down on the one piece of furniture in the room, an antique wooden roll-top desk that is easily several hundred years old. This is beautiful, I say, admiring the way the elegantly carved ivy that decorates its top cascades down the desk's external panels on both sides. I've never seen anything like this. Polly loves woodworking, Fanny explains, running her fingers along one of the dramatic vines. Hoka is one enormous forest, trees as far as you can see in every direction. Everyone does a little woodworking there, but then we came here. Her voice trails off and she looks out her window at Iona's restless, treeless sand. He became even more appreciative of a fine carving once we got to Iona. One plus is that it's so dry here, wooden things last a long time if you keep them away from the sand. You're okay with this, right? I ask. Running a pod can be a lot. I'm okay with it, she says, turning back to her hammock setup. Graham, as you know, can be quite convincing. And he made some good points when we talked about this last night. And I do feel Polly would want me to step up for our pod. I've been really hard on Graham, but I didn't know how this was affecting him. I think he was able to explain himself finally. She lets her voice drift off and loses herself for a moment in uncharacteristic contemplation but just as seamlessly the fanny I'm used to returns. Besides, you're going to help me with the pod when I have questions, she says and winks at me. But first, you're going to tell me everything you did last night in extensive detail, and I do mean everything. Before I can formulate an objection, an enraged shriek erupts from the main hallway, followed by hard-heeled footsteps echoing across the common room, storming toward our location. Fanny smiles serenely and murmurs, Oh, it sounds like Miss March has found her new room. (laughs) Buckle up. Why are my personal possessions scattered out in the open? March roars as she appears at Fanny's open door. Her face is flushed with irritation, which only serves to make her white blonde hair that much more dramatic. They aren't scattered, they're neatly stacked, Fanny says with impressive calm. She doesn't bother to turn around to look at Fallon March. And they aren't in the hallway, they are next to your assigned quarters. You should go through them and select the items you want to keep with you. The rest will send to temporary storage. They're my things, March announces tersely. I need to keep all of them with me. They cannot go to some storage locker. These are extremely important items. There isn't room. Fanny's voice remains even, but I can see the fire building in her eyes as she gets on with the business of securing her hammock to its stand. Her back is to March, who, unable to observe the change coming over Fanny's facial features, continues to protest. Then you have to make room, and I cannot share quarters with two other people. I demand you accommodate me, she snarls. This is not a hotel, snaps Fanny in a suddenly stern voice, spinning around and stepping toward March so aggressively that shock shows on the other woman's face, and she takes a full step back from the doorway. 
You have the quarters you have, and you should be damn glad you have them. Some of us wanted you tucked into a security holding cell rather than being dead air in a working pod. That can still be arranged, but you won't have access to any of your belongings there either. So you can start going through your things now and continue to be a guest in this pod with at least a modest amount of freedom, or I'll hail a security detail to come and get you. March is speechless. Fanny crosses her arms over her chest and smiles sweetly, then inclines her head toward the hallway where March's possessions are stacked. The younger woman stares at her for a moment, then lets out a bark of irritation, turns on her heel, and stomps away without another word. I'm speechless myself. When Fanny returns to adjusting her hammock, her face is a model of peaceful serenity. The loud clatter of Fallon March rifling through her own belongings, punctuated by frequent expletives, reverberates through the pod. Fanny catches my eye and winks. You might have a knack for this after all, I say. But the next instant we hear an entirely different kind of shriek, and I pause. This one is young, female, and terrified, and is accompanied by a frightened voice coming from outside. Fanny and I immediately run out of her room, through the common room and kitchen in the direction of the sound. As we burst into the pod's courtyard, I draw a sharp, deep breath as I see Bennett kneeling on the ground, shouting for help. In his left hand, he holds the dripping remains of a shattered silver sphere. His right arm is around Holly, holding her tight as she gasps and shrieks. She has spatters of the sphere's liquid across her hands and bare thighs where her skin is already turning blue. The color is spreading up her forearms and along the hem of her short yellow summer frock. Do something, cries Bennett, seeing us run through the door. Help her, please! Keep everyone back, I tell Fanny, who turns to herd the cluster of arriving onlookers away from the couple. But I don't have a chance to do more than that when a voice behind me shouts, Get out of the way! In such an authoritative tone, I instinctively step back. I'm stunned to see Fallon March rush past me in a blur of burgundy, physically shoving people out of her path. My first thought is that she's going to use this crisis to escape somehow, but instead she yells, Someone get me sand! A lot of loose sand! as she charges across the courtyard to kneel on the ground next to Bennett and Holly. Keep breathing, she says to Holly. Breathe slow. Make yourself calm. You'll be all right, but you must stay calm. Holly is crying, but she listens to March and tries to control her breathing. Put that sphere down, March instructs Bennett. Lower your hand to the ground and let the pieces roll out. Are you cut anywhere? No, says Bennett, depositing the shards of the sphere carefully in the sand next to him. Her eyebrows knit together as she looks Bennett up and down quickly. Bioequivalent hand, she says. Whole arm, Bennett replies, and March looks visibly relieved for a moment. Good, she says, then looks over her shoulder and shouts, Where's that fucking sand? Here, shouts Mila, appearing at the far end of the courtyard with Fanny. The two are struggling to pull one of the pod's planter tubs filled with sand toward the scene. Stay here, stay calm, March says to Bennett and Holly, and runs to meet the two women grappling with the tub. Keep back, she tells him. Fanny, give me your jacket. Fanny peels off her beige jacket quickly and tosses it to March, who zips it up, ties the sleeves together, and begins using it as a makeshift sand bucket. Mila, seeing the process, strips off her jacket and does the same, as do several of the onlookers. By the time March runs back to Bennett and Holly, a dozen more people are filling their jackets with sand, and others have gone in search of better buckets to replace them. I run to help ferry the containers between the tub and where Fallon has crouched next to the frightened Holly. This is going to feel weird, she says to Holly in a calming, kind voice I've never heard her use, but you're going to be okay. Try to relax. I'm going to bury you in this stuff, but you'll still be able to breathe and you'll be all right, okay? Holly nods, but March has not waited for her acquiescence. 
She rips open Fanny's jacket and dumps sand onto the frightened teenager, starting with the areas contaminated by the liquid and continuing until Holly's hands, abdomen, and upper thighs are covered. Keep the sand coming, she shouts, and we all work furiously. Holly's eyes begin to roll up, but March shakes her. Stay with me, she says, and the girl gasps a little bit and tries to bring her eyes back to focus. Your boyfriend is going to move away and you're going to lie back. It's okay. Got me? Yes, Holly whispers. Don't touch her with that left hand, March warns. Once she's down, get some sand on it and cover up that broken thing, but don't lose track of where it is. Bennett gently lowers Holly to the ground with his right arm, then slips from behind her. I toss him one of the makeshift sand buckets, and he dumps its contents onto his contaminated left hand and the remnants of the silver sphere in one smooth motion. March is continuing to bury Holly as quickly as she can, but I can see traces of blue creeping out from under the sand along Holly's exposed skin. Can I help? I ask. I think you need more hands. March looks at me critically. Do you know what this stuff is? She asks. Yes, I say. I'm prepared. Start covering, March responds, and the two of us begin working double time to cover Holly in the sand. The next 20 minutes are a blur. Fanny organizes people to continuously fetch tubs full of sand and still more people to find containers that can be used to ferry the sand to where March and I are working. Holly is beginning to convulse and her trembling body keeps shaking the sand from her skin, but gradually we make headway. At last, she's almost entirely covered. Fallon leans forward and whispers to her, we're going to cover your face. Don't worry, you'll be all right. You will still be able to breathe. It may feel scary, but everything is going to be fine. Remember to breathe slowly and stay calm. With that, she pours a full container of sand over Holly's face, completely burying the young woman. Several of the assembled people gasp, and March takes a moment to shoot them a disgusted look before leaning down close to the sand at Holly's ear to say, You're okay. Breathe slowly. Everything will be all right in just a little while. An anxious silence settles over us all. March looks over at Bennett and says, You should be fine now, but you'll probably want to get a new hand just in case. Did you mark where the sphere is buried? Bennett, releasing his left hand from its own sand pile, points to the jacket that contained the sand he used. It's under that. Somebody, please put a couple of rocks or something on that so it doesn't get moved, March says in a voice that sounds suspiciously like a humble request. But don't smash what's underneath it. Everyone should stay away from here until we have this taken care of. Fanny, already herding people out of the courtyard, says... I'll set up a barrier. Mach has been hailed and is on the way. Security's on the way. Everybody's on the way. What about Holly? I ask. March looks at me with confusion, and I realize she never even asked Holly's name before jumping in to help her. I indicate the girl's prone form, hidden completely under the sand, and March's eyebrows lift in acknowledgement. Holly will be all right, but she needs to stay like this for a little while longer, she says. She'll need to be monitored. I'll sit with her. We can both sit with her, I say. March looks at me carefully for a moment, perhaps unsure of my intentions, so I proffer a slight smile. She shrugs in response, but the edge of her mouth tilts up into an almost smile, so I settle in next to her. She leans over to the sand at Holly's ear and says, Holly, you're going to be fine. Faith and I are going to stay here with you, and we'll uncover you soon. Don't worry, we're here. March sits up and crosses her legs underneath her, letting out an exhausted breath. She takes the extraordinary action of brushing a small patch of sand from the right knee of her now completely sand-encrusted burgundy slags. That was something, I say. I don't know what you did or how you knew to do it, but thank you. March's mouth twists in annoyance. You're nearly all idiots here, she proclaims, in a tone of voice much closer to what I've come to think of as normal for her. But after a slight pause, she adds, You're welcome.
Her fingers begin to tap out their habitual rhythm on her knee, but she stops and holds up her hand, studying her flexing fingers with a scowl. I broke a nail, she mutters to herself. Motherfucker. The immediate crisis appears to be over, but across the next half hour, the pod becomes increasingly chaotic. Fallon and I continue to sit in the courtyard next to Holly, but she's taken control of the entire situation and barks orders to security, clinical, Fanny, and even Graham from her seated position. Arden, after confirming with me that I'm all right, immediately begins an intense discussion with Graham just out of earshot. Fallon watches them with a wry, bemused smile. I suppose they're trying to decide what to do with me now, she says. That's not a decision that's unilaterally theirs, I say. You probably saved Holly's life, but it does prove that you lied to us. She turns and peered at me skeptically. I didn't lie, she says. You didn't ask the right questions. Cat's out of the bag now, I say, raising my eyebrow at her. She laughs in a way that suggests she finds the situation anything but funny. I suppose it is, she says, turning her head away to look out over the dust that's beginning to settle on Iona. I suppose it is. My attempt at conversation is dead on arrival. We sit in silence for the next 45 minutes. Finally, Fallon stands and waves Matcha over. You'll want to uncover her now, she instructs, and take her to clinical. She'll be unconscious for a few hours, and you might see some residual coloration, but that's expected. The color should dissipate over the next few days. Keep a bucket of sand on hand and massage it into her skin if there's any recurrence. And make sure you're gloved at all times. Matcha simply nods and waves over several of the techs who accompanied her to the scene. Together, they glove up and start to work. Once Holly is uncovered and I see for myself that she is not blue anywhere other than where her skin contacted the chemical directly, I detach myself from the scene and join Arden, Graham, and Fanny on the periphery of the courtyard. I keep watching, however, until Holly is placed on a hover gurney bound for clinical, with Bennett following behind on a sand scooter. Fallon stays in the thick of the action, giving instructions and directing the activities. Do you have a hazardous materials detail? She asks Mabry. If you do, then you need to use it to remove what's under that jacket, along with the jacket and the sand beneath it to a depth of about six inches. And if you don't, you need to invent one immediately. Treat this like it's the most hazardous thing you can imagine, because it is. On it, Mabry says, and within a few minutes, a security detail descends on the scene like a collection of masked ants. We'll want that sphere. Don't dispose of it, I call out, and Mabry gives me a thumbs up. Fallon looks at me like I'm an annoying insect. With a seed through acrylic? Mabry asks. Do we need something glass-like instead? Good grief, it's not sulfuric acid, Fallon responds with a huff and an eye roll. Put it in anything non-porous. She certainly knows a lot about this version of blue, growls Graham under his breath. As do you, Arden says, a tinge of sharpness in his voice. Graham pretends not to have heard him, but this, his mouth draws into a thin, tight line nonetheless. That turned out to be fortunate in this instance, Fanny points out. Am I wrong to say not one of us would have had any idea what to do if this had happened without March here, including both of you? Arden and Graham look at the ground. Arden seems particularly chagrined. At least we know that she was lying to us this morning, he says. She says she didn't lie, I say. But obviously she did, Graham counters. Maybe not, I say. She said we didn't ask her the right questions. I've been thinking about that. We asked her if the spheres were her property, and she said no. We asked her what she knew about how they got into the credenza, and she said nothing. We never asked her if she knew what they were, what they contained, or what the impact of breaking one open might be. We never asked her if she knew anything about blue at all. Fanny hoots. She outsmarted you, she says. That's rich. She's still a gigantic flaming asswipe, but I might be starting to like her. Oh, look, here comes your new best friend now, Graham says with a smirk, looking over Fanny's head at the rapidly approaching Fallon March, her fists balled and a look of supreme irritation on her face. Want to stick around and give her a hug? 
No, no, gotta go run my pod, see you all later, Fanny chirps and slips past Graham to beat a hasty retreat into the pod kitchen. So what's the story here? Are you in charge or is she? Fallon asks, jerking her thumb in the direction of the disappearing Fanny. Because we need to sort out something else as far as my accommodations. Fanny's in charge, but you won't get anywhere with her either. There aren't any other options, Graham says tersely. You should probably stop whining about sharing. Alice and Mila don't bite. Fallon studies Graham for a moment, her expression weary. Are you really this dense? She asks. Did you not see what just happened here? You helped Holly, and we're all grateful for that, but it's still... Think big picture, Governor Dirtweed, Fallon interrupts. Graham rolls his eyes at the taunt, but she doesn't acknowledge it. I'm sure Alice and Mila don't bite, but there's a good chance they might not be breathing either if you don't find me a more secure accommodation, she continues. I just drew a skiff load of tension to myself by exhibiting knowledge that certain people we are both well aware of may find very alarming, possibly even threatening. How big a target do you think that put on my back? It's on all our backs, I say. Everyone here will know what you did by morning. The target just expanded to include the whole planet. They were after you already. I, at least, was somewhat incognito, Fallon protests. Arden laughs aloud. You've been about as incognito as a lander crash, he says. But I suppose it's all in the interpretation. All right, stop, I say. It's clear we have more to talk about. You give us the information we're looking for, and we'll find you a spot somewhere more secure and possibly more private. Fair? Fallon bites her lower lip as she considers my offer. I suppose, she finally says. Let's make this delightful exchange happen tonight, please, and I want my weapon back also. One thing at a time, Fallon, I caution. She tosses me one last exasperated look, then pushes past me, heading toward the pod. I'm going to get this filth off me, she says, shaking her hands as if to rid them of imaginary cobwebs. Find me when you've sorted out your logistics. Well, that was something, Graham remarks, watching her stride off, and I have no idea what to make of any of it. We aren't going to make any progress standing out here, and security needs us to leave so they can complete their hazmat protocol, I say. Let's find a spot to talk while Fallon's completing her beauty routine. Between the turmoil with Holly and the approach of the evening meal, the pod has become crowded and chaotic. The common room is packed with people. We wind up squeezing into Fanny's room to discuss what to do with Fallon March. There aren't many options available. We can't move her back into Fanny's room, and there's no way this pod can be reshuffled to create a private space for her. All our other pods are effectively full as well. Presentation Theater has rooms that could be made into makeshift accommodations, but the building itself is too out in the open with almost no security, and preparing a secure space will take more time than we have. We also consider putting her in a room in clinical, but when hail at the idea, Mata objects. If she's potentially going to be in danger, the last place we want her is near vulnerable people who can't protect themselves. A valid point. It's not long before we all agree that there's only one secure, vacant, close-at-hand space that can serve as Fallon's temporary quarters. That's not going to feel like house arrest, says Fanny glumly. She'll probably never want to leave. But it's also the only private spot on Iona, so once we're all in agreement, I go in search of our guest while everyone else heads up to the star parlor. I'm halfway across the common room when I'm intercepted by Tomas. His face is pink with excitement, and he's rubbing his hands together like an eager kid in front of a pile of free candy. It sounds like it was a very dramatic afternoon, he says. Fanny invited me over for dinner, so I only arrived after all the action was over. Is everyone going to be all right? Well, that's the theory, I say. Time will tell, of course. Sounded like it could have been very serious, he says, tugging at his mustache in a contemplative way. It certainly could have been. We were fortunate. He nods and looks at me with wide eyes, waiting for me to say more. When I don't, he fills in the gap himself. 
How lucky that the security chief knew that trick with the sand, he says. Everyone's talking about it. She's not the most agreeable person in the world, but she's a hero now, like it or not. Don't be ridiculous. I'm utterly charming, comes the crisp, icy voice from behind us, and Fallon emerges from the hallway. She's clean, scrubbed, and rosy from the shower, and her hair is still a little damp, yet somehow she's maintaining her persona of icy perfection. She's now clad in a more casual forest green pullover and black slacks with small leather packs slung over her shoulder, but her bearing and tilt of her head send a message of unassailable authority. Tomas steps back a bit as she approaches, then visibly screws up his nerve and extends his hand. Tomas Berenbart, he says, pleased to meet you. Fallon regards the proffered hand for a beat too long, giving its owner the once-over, but then grasps it just after Tomas exhibits profound discomfort with her assessment and starts to withdraw it. Hello, she says. She turns to me while still shaking Tomas's hand, as though he's not even there, and asks, have things been resolved? Yes, we think so. Come with me, and we'll have your things moved after our conversation. I gesture in the direction of the auxiliary hallway that leads past Fanny's room to the lift that goes up to the star parlor. Good, she says, dropping Tomas's hand without any further acknowledgement of him and walking away. For his part, Tomas simply stares after her, hand still floating in the air with a puzzled expression on his face. Fanny will be down shortly, I tell him. He looks even more confused, then the lights go on and he nods. Good, good, tell her I'll be here, he says, and tell her I'm glad everything is okay and, and I hope she's not in any danger or anything, you know. The statement seems peculiar to me, and I look at Tomas for a moment longer, trying to see any sort of thought process on his features, but they offer nothing out of the ordinary. Tomas is often not the most articulate person in the lineup anyway, so I put it down to anxiety. Fallon is waiting for me beside the lift and taps the call button as I approach. He's an odd duck, she says, tilting her head back toward where Thomas is still standing, twiddling his mustache and looking after us. I don't know him at all, really, I admit, just from what Fanny's told me. Fanny? Fallon's eyebrows go up so high they almost break into her hairline. That just seems... unnecessary. The silver lift cylinder arrives at our level and we step inside. She needed the distraction, especially lately, I say. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the warehouse explosion victim is her brother. Yeah, I know. The cylinder door whispers shut and the lift automatically begins its ascent. Within seconds, we're at the top of the cliff and the door opens into the crystalline tunnel that connects it to the star parlor. Fallon hangs back to let me step out first, but I gesture for her to go ahead, and she does so without hesitation. I take it you don't trust me, she says, as we proceed down the tunnel. If you were me, would you trust you? I ask. She seems unsurprised by the question and glances over her shoulder at me, a look of amusement on her face. You're right, I wouldn't, she says. But it's one of those rare times I would actually be wrong. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.